You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Valchunas. Eric, um, the stock market over the past week has give, given me heart palpitations. Uh, and it feels like we've just been on this like roller coaster. And there's been dread about inflation, rising rates. Uh, and then there's been corporate earnings in the backdrop, which have kind of exceeded expectations. I'm really confused. Can you help me make sense of that? And do you have any guests who could help? Yeah, well, we have uh, two great guests. It's a perfect one-two punch because everything going on in the market now really mostly is is a derivative of the Fed and their plan to be more hawkish. Uh, there's two ways they're doing that, which we'll go into, but it's not just rate hikes. But the idea of raising interest rates, because they're obviously concerned about inflation. And inflation, I think, is actually trumping the idea that the stock market could fall, um, especially politically. I don't think uh, you know any of these politicians want to go into midterms or the presidential election with inflation running high. So the Fed uh, looks like they're committed. I've been pretty critical of the Fed always folding like a lawn chair. Where they get hawkish and they just fold immediately when the stock market goes down two points. But they seem pretty persistent. That last um, uh, press conference that uh, Powell had, I felt he was the strongest he'd been. I'm a casual observer. I'm not an expert. But I, I, as somebody who's doubted them, I, I feel like they they're have more of a spine now. And so everybody's just repositioning. And they're saying, well, if, if, if rates are going to go up a little bit, I've got to figure different things out in my portfolio. So it's hurt growth stocks, um, help bank stocks, hurt bonds. And so there's a lot of repositioning. I will say that general mass blob of retail flow is still kind of buying Vanguard. But oh, the outer layers, definitely, you can feel a lot of activity. Um, around this, including some selling of uh, of stocks and, and ETFs. So you'll help us with the ETF side, but who's going to help us with sort of the, the equity slash economic outlook through all of this? So uh, Carl Riccadonna, who I've known for a while and now is sort of in my group, um, he's going to take the Fed part of this. And he's so good at simplifying Fed speak. And I really go always go to him when I have a question. And then Gina Martin-Adams, who is both of our bosses, she covers the macro outlook. So she's always looking at earnings and the Fed and how the whole thing fits together. So I think she can also talk about how the new environment is affecting her outlook. All right. So joining us on Trillions, Carl Riccadonna, the chief economist for Bloomberg Intelligence, as well as Gina Martin-Adams back on the pod, the chief equity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. This time on Trillions, buckle up for a roller coaster. Carl, Gina, welcome back to Trillions. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm going to start with you, Carl. Is the Fed going to fold like Eric's lawn chair? Uh, The Fed's not going to fold like a lawn chair here, uh, but 
uh, I don't think they're going to be as aggressive as some of the uh, worst concerns in the marketplace. So uh, as Eric mentioned, uh, in the past, the Fed has been uh, very reactive to a, uh, a resetting of financial conditions, explicitly uh, sharp declines in the equity markets because the stock market and the economy are not two uh, independent uh, creatures. What happens in the stock market often has very significant consequences for wealth effects, for households, for confidence effects uh, among companies who maybe pull back on the pace of hiring when uh, when equities take a swoon or become much less confident in the economic outlook because equities are uh, in a nosedive. So that that does have implications for the commodity uh, for the uh, Fed uh, reaction function. Uh, but front and center at the moment is the fact that now the Fed's two main objectives, maximizing the level of employment in the economy uh, and achieving price stability are now both on the same side of the the, the, the too cold, too hot uh, spectrum. Uh, they are both running too hot. So we have the unemployment rate below where the Fed thinks it should settle in the longer run uh, and obviously inflation uh, far uh, outstripping uh, the Fed's 2% objective. The last reading on the CPI uh, showed a 7% print. So let's go into what they do. Okay, so there's we all know that over the past 10 years, they've kept rates low and they've bought they've bought a- assets. I mean, they have a balance sheet that's, uh, I, I want to say $4 trillion, but you'll correct me in a minute if I'm wrong. Now, explain this idea of what are they doing on the rate side and what are they doing on the balance sheet side going forward? So what's happening, uh, the, the Fed uh, uses interest rates, the overnight lending rate, as its primary policy tool. And so as uh, you know, as the economy heats up, they raise interest rates to slow things down. Uh, what happens in the overnight rate then often gets uh, multiplied out uh, into uh, longer term lending rates, whether it's your credit card rate, the interest rate on your car loan, your mortgage, uh, or corporate debt lending rates. So what the Fed does then has r- uh, ripple effects throughout the broader economy. Uh, the problem for the Fed if you keep cutting interest rates, eventually you get to zero. Uh, And once you get to zero, then uh, negative interest rates don't really work that well. So that's a a policy option the Fed has abandoned. Uh, And so what the Fed does then uh, is reach further out into the maturity spectrum or further out on the yield curve uh, by influencing other interest rates. So as we saw after the the global financial crisis in 2007 to 2009, uh, the Fed cut rates to zero for the first time uh, and saw the need to do more. Uh, And so in doing more, they purchase assets. So they purchase, uh, in this case, uh, treasury securities of of varying maturity, so across the yield curve, uh, and also they purchase mortgages. Now, the mortgages, uh, kind of a legacy of the housing bust in uh, 08, 09, uh, and they saw a particular need uh, to influence uh, financial conditions for households. We come out of the 09 uh, recession and have a very weak economic recovery, so the Fed's very slow to tighten policy by both raising interest rates and also starting to shrink the size of its balance sheet. Uh, Sure enough, COVID comes along in 2020. uh, The Fed, again, has to aggressively cut rates and doesn't have enough room to just uh, achieve their objective through interest rate cuts. So they cut to zero and once again start expanding the balance sheet, uh, in this case, even more aggressively than they did uh, back uh, around the global financial crisis. So they have 
Uh, in 2009, uh, they quadrupled the size of their balance sheet, and now uh, the balance sheet is uh, approaching uh, nine or ten uh, uh, trillion dollars. So it's a, a huge number here uh, for the Fed. Uh, and uh, this provided tremendous stimulus during the COVID crisis. Uh, you know, we can say, well, the Fed did too much and in, in, in hindsight that that created some inflation problems. But uh, we cannot uh, underestimate you know, what could have potentially transpired had the Fed not acted so aggressively. We saw even the most deep and liquid financial market in the world, the U.S. Treasury market, basically seizing up in March of 2020. And so uh, this was a matter of not only propping up the economy, uh, but also preserving the sanctity, the liquidity of the most deep uh, mark asset classes uh, that are, are hugely consequential for the global economy and the U.S. economy. So the Fed had to step in in a major way. We didn't know exactly how the pandemic would play out. We didn't fully understand what the mortality rate was in the early stages of the pandemic. So the Fed acted in a very big fashion. Uh, the other factor they didn't understand was how much fiscal stimulus would be coming through because they, you know, the experience after the uh, the global financial crisis, uh, Congress was very stingy providing stimulus to the economy, and so the the you know the risk was that if we saw a reprise of that, given the political tension in the economy in the country at that time, uh, that maybe there would not be much fiscal support. So the Fed went massively. Uh, we got a lot of fiscal stimulus, trillions of fiscal stimulus. So that did very importantly prop up the economy until it could get back onto its own uh, feet. Uh, and now the Fed has realized we're at a stage where it is now time. You know, you know, the pandemic is becoming endemic. Uh, it's less of a threat to the economy. And so the Fed is pulling back on those uh, those levers of accommodation, which means we'll soon be seeing uh, both uh, interest rate increases uh, and later this year, perhaps much later this year, the Fed will start to gradually shrink its balance sheet. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Gina, um, Carl successfully has ratcheted up my anxiety. I feel like I'm at the top <laughs> of that roller coaster now, and uh, which was not what I needed after the last week in, of watching yeah. this market uh, take me take me on some whiplash. 
we had you on a few months ago. One of the things that I that we did spend some time up talking about then was inflation. Mm-hmm. It's gotten it's just become like almost the only thing that the market and the Fed is has been centered on since that conversation. So just bring us up to speed on on where where you are now, what what you feel like that outlook is, um, yeah. and and how powerful um, the Fed is, and what the market's going to be doing in the weeks and months to come. Yeah. Um... Long, lot of questions to answer there. I'll, I'll try to get to all of them. First, Joel, I have to say you're going to have to toughen up. You're, you're going to have to get stronger because it's going to be a wild ride in 2022. We have been here before, right? The Fed has attempted to reverse or normalize policy multiple times over the course of the last 10 years. In each case, especially when they stopped inflating the balance sheet, the stock market goes through a pretty rough correction, right? On average, we see the stock market fall somewhere between 15 and 20% in each of those cases that that Carl alluded to. So I do think we have to, we're going to have to be tougher in 2022. We've gotten very complacent as equity investors over the last two years, just really accustomed to constant gains in the equity market. And that's highly unlikely to be the case in in 2022. That said, you know, I think a couple of things have changed since the last time I was on. And most of it is really the Fed's interpretation of what's going on. If you recall, when we talked last, we talked about the fact that I believe the economy is on much, much stronger footing than most economists are forecasting. And the demand side of inflation is completely underappreciated. And and the Fed really leaned on this idea that inflation was going to be transitory. It would go away because it was all supply driven. And the reality is that household balance sheets are in much, much better condition than they were last cycle. So sort of going on a last cycle playbook for how slow they can move, uh, that's really changed over the course of the last few months where the Fed is now acknowledging, well, you know, even some of the most esoteric unemployment rate measures that we like to follow to suggest that we're not yet at maximum employment. Well, lo and behold, we're back to where we were in 2019, right? Retail sales are still on fire for the most part. Inflation is still very strong. There's there's really very few signs, signs that the economy is even slowing down. So inflation may actually sustain. And I think they finally have capitulated on the idea that yeah, as Carl mentioned, the pandemic is becoming endemic. It's less of a risk to broader economic growth, and we need to normalize things. So the natural reaction in the stock market is, oh, hey, okay, we thought you were going to be our best buddy, and now you're going to leave us be. So valuations are naturally reacting. Um, I think Eric mentioned at the onset that you know the market has reacted to inflation. I totally agree. In particular, the market has reacted to how rates are are moving with respect to inflation and with respect to what the Fed is going to do specifically. Uh, and we see that in our work in the equity market, the stocks with the most sensitivity to rates have dramatically underperformed the stocks with the least sensitivity to rates. And I, and I think that that's the, going to be the prevailing case for most of 2020, because this is an adjustment process. Now, that said, there is a saving grace here that nobody's talking about. And that is, hey, the economy is still strong. And I think we're going to continue to underappreciate just how strong the economy is, even in the face of Fed tightening, even in the face of potential balance sheet runoff. We probably will continue to underappreciate just how strong that economy is. And that shows up in earnings. So the offset for the market is this sort of pull and push kind of um, metaphor where valuations are constantly under some degree of pressure. But earnings do make up some of that difference. And as long as earnings hold in, uh, you know, the longer term uptrend for the stock market probably remains intact. Um, let me follow up on this whole idea, because I think people out there hear all the time, oh, 
higher rates bad for growth stocks? They're bad for the ARC stocks. Mm -hmm. Clearly, that's happened, right? ARC is down 47% mm -hmm. in the past year, but the S&P is up 20. That yep. is a big spread, although ARC crushed it in 2020. Long story short, just explain why just 25, 50 basis points right. make that big of a difference yeah. for some of these stocks like Zoom, Roku. I mean, these are pretty big companies. It's not like they're like, nobody companies who have nothing going on. I, I, I guess maybe try to square that. Yeah. So a, a couple of things happen, right? It, if you're a purist, if you're a pure fundamentalist, you believe the value of any equity is its discounted future to cash flow stream, right? And so if that discount rate is going higher and your future cash flows are not changing, as the discount rate goes higher, the stocks that had the longest term future cash flow growth are going to be impacted the most. Those are the growth stocks in the market in, a gen most gen in the most generic sense. At the same time, there is a proven relationship between high volatility stocks and the balance sheet for the Fed. And not very many people can really explain this, but the reality of the situation is every time that balance sheet has accelerated, the highest volatility stocks in the S&P 500, no matter what type of stock they are, have tended to benefit. So we, what we started to see all the way back in March of last year, actually, is some of these most high volatility stocks in the market started to suss out this idea that the Fed was going to have to tighten policy and liquidity conditions would start to change. And the reduced, the, this materially reduced risk tolerance for these type of stocks. Some of them are high growth or high cash flow growth stocks. Some of them have no cash flow at all. So you can't explain it through a traditional fundamental metric. But they are sensitive because they're high vol. And we've really started to see this in some of our factor work over the course of the last six months, especially as uh, the factor models that we run were saying, get out of the way of high volatility stocks. Start to move your portfolio to lower volatility stocks. And that is reflecting what's happening with interest rate expectations, but also what's happening with expectations for the balance sheet. If the balance sheet is not going to continue to rise, it will impact the most volatile stocks in the market most. Um, and I think that's what's happened with some of the ARCs and you know some of these meme stocks and the like. I mean, you know, as is typically the case, the market really started to suss this out, as I mentioned, almost a full year ago now. But you had some offsets that made us kind of not, you know, maybe when we're looking at the aggregate numbers, the S&P 500 looked great. But if you look at where the returns came from in the S&P 500, it was characteristically very different than the 2020 returns. Just to paraphrase Gina in very blunt layman's terms, stocks love QE, quantitative <laughs> yeah. easing, the asset purchases from the Fed. If the Fed so much as whispers QE, stocks rally. And when the Fed does the opposite, which is what they've been doing over the course of the last year, when they talk about quantitative tightening, the shrinking of the balance sheet, then the, you know stocks, as much as they like QE, they despise QT. And the Fed has been murmuring increasingly loudly about quantitative tightening and what that's going to look like over the course of the last uh, several months, especially uh, in uh, since the December FOMC meeting. Uh, and stocks don't like that, especially the risky stocks don't like that. And that's totally consistent with what we've seen play out in the marketplace. So, Carl, let's just stick with that for a second. Say I give you the football. You are Jay Powell. When do you next look at the stock market? 
Well, you have to continuously watch the stock market and see how it's reacting to what you're doing. Because, again, the stock market is not uh, divorced from the real economy. Everyone says Wall Street is not Main Street, but there are very important linkages here. The stock market is a periscope into the future, into future company earnings, into the future health of the economy. So if stocks are tanking, that's giving you a very negative signal on the economy, and that tells you maybe you need to move at a slower pace in terms of tightening policy. Mind you, if we're thinking about uh, Eric Incorporated, let's call it a small business. Eric is producing widgets. No, uh, if he, he, it's chairs, lawn chairs. Lawn chairs. Okay, Eric's lawn chair company. Uh, if his business is growing at a 10% pace and the cost of his financing is 1%, what are you going to do, Eric? Grow the business? Sure. Sure. Keep growing it. Okay. Now uh, your business slows down to 8%. Uh, your cost of financing goes up to 4%. Keep growing the business? A little. A little. Okay. Now the business is growing 4% and your cost of financing is 5%. You're going to grow the business? No. I'm, I'm going to cash out. Anymore. I'm going to cash out. (laughs) IPO, cash out. Well, you're you're not going to continue to grow the business. And what's true for Eric's Lawn Chairs Incorporated uh, is also true for a $20 trillion U.S. economy. When the cost of financing approaches the growth rate, then all of a sudden we're not stepping on the gas pedal anymore. Now we're starting to move towards the brake pedal. So as the Fed lifts rates from zero to maybe 1% at year end, uh, that's really just easing off of the accelerator. It's not stepping on the brake pedal, but it's moving in the direction of the brake pedal. And so that's why Gina can have a very constructive outlook for the economy and for stocks. Uh, just to, to put those numbers around, uh, instead of uh, Eric's lawn chair business, uh, the U.S. economy right? Interest rates are zero or effectively zero. Uh, The economy as of the final quarter of 2021 grew at a nominal pace of 12% year on year. So there's a huge gap between 12, the growth rate of the business, and zero, the cost of financing. The Fed is going to start narrowing that gap uh, and probably nominal GDP slows down, uh, you know, considerably to something closer to five or 6% by the end of this year. But if the Fed is hiking once per quarter, that puts them at 1%. So you still have a huge interest rate differential. It's, we're not talking until maybe 2024 or beyond if the Fed continues on this steady pace of tightening uh, to really move that interest rate differential down to what we would call a neutral pace. The Fed is giving it a very aggressive steroid to the economy and will continue to do so, albeit in slightly smaller doses going forward. I would just add one thing, because I think that was a great explanation surrounding the cost of finance. Financing. Um, I would say when we look at corporate balance sheets, the, the thing that also is completely underappreciated is that cost of financing is significantly lower than you might observe when you're looking at even spreads because of the degree of, to which companies have built up cash stores. And it's very similar with households where we are substantially less dependent on, on financing to grow. Uh, especially relative to the last cycle, where corporate balance sheets and household balance sheets were in tremendous disrepair following the great financial crisis, they're on significantly sounder footing. Uh, You know, the perfect example of this is Microsoft wants to grow. They don't need to go issue debt to even buy a company as large as Activision. 
which is a huge testament to just how much insane amount of cash is just sitting on balance sheets. And it's the same across most of the S&P 500, where corporate cash is still sitting near an all-time high, even though we're this far into recovery. And it's it's quite phenomenal, right? Is this companies just haven't spent a ton yet on anything. And even though they've been able to tap the bond markets for the last couple of years, they have stored up a lot of capability of keeping this cycle going for longer than many people anticipate, even if the Fed is tight. And I should just add to what Gina's saying, uh, what she's seeing at the company level is also true at the household level. Households stockpiled cash during the pandemic. They got rebate checks from the government. They didn't have the opportunity to spend money uh, in many cases. And a lot of households were uh, significantly invested in the markets. And so they saw their uh, wealth uh, increase on that front as well. So there's a, a mountain of savings that's in the trillions of dollars that households are sitting on, which is why they can weather the storm of slightly higher inflation and uh, higher interest rates as well. But it's going to be a bumpy little ride here, Eric, uh, for all of them. And I'm, I'm curious, like just as flows go, something I know you watch closely all the time. What, what's it, what's it been like of late? Where, where have people gotten out of? I saw that spy was, had a massive outflow. Um, what, what other, what other kind of things have caught your eye and bring it back to the world of ETFs for us? Yeah, sure. And I think this, I'll pivot to a question for Gina, which is, the, the, the main Vanguard investor is just totally oblivious. They're just investing. Vanguard's taken in a 21 mm-hmm. billion. That's just, like, it's just like nothing's happening. Um, Schwab is doing well too. So if you're like a passive Bogolin type investor, none of this really bothers you. That said, there's the trading crowd and people, institutions who are repositioning on the, on the fringes especially. So for example, we're seeing a lot of money go into financial ETFs. Obviously, rates go up, they can lend, get a higher... Uh, rate or they can get more, their interest rates are good for them. We've also seen gold get a bid because I think there's some nerves on like, hey, I should be more diversified because my 60 and my 40 is going down. And we've seen value ETFs um, and energy. I'd put energy and value together almost because they're beat up for so long. So there's a bit of a repositioning Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where it's happening. And the other thing that's the, the big loser this year, besides the queues, which is seeing outflows, is bonds. If you look at the uh, outflow list, it's basically, it's a who's who of the all the bond ETFs, TLT, HYG, even the TIP ETFs, uh, TIPS ETFs, LQD, IEF, JNK. It's basically treasuries, mortgages, because if rates go up, all those current bonds are just worthless because mm-hmm. you can get more with the new rate. So uh, the, what the Fed is doing clearly is going to impact the bond market. And there's been this huge monster bull market for like 20 years and like, I guess I would throw it to Gina. I just went over a lot, but are, are is the bond market going to have real problems? And is that going to spill over into the stock yeah. market? Um, you know, I think that we certainly are on the precipice of uh, a longer term shift in rates. And, and I base that opinion based simply on my views of the economy. I just think the economy is in a completely different condition than it was for the bulk of the last 10 years. I also think the inflationary scenario is very different in part as a result of that, but other uh, longer term structural factors as well. And the result of that is we are very unlikely to see rates as low as we did for the for much of the last 10 years or the first call it 10 years of this of this bull market in stocks. So the value of your future cash flows, you know, is naturally going to adjust to rates moving higher. But again, the offset there is that cash flow growth should also be stronger. 
And the thing that we might all be underappreciating is if bonds move from 30-year bull market to bear market or even just moving sideways and then slightly bear market, what we could be underappreciating is just the amount of capital that comes out of bonds and goes into stocks. And that, I think, is much more difficult to model um, it's been one of the anomalies of the past, the first 10 years of the cycle were not about investors putting more money to work in stocks. We know that for sure. We know that investors broadly household ownership of equities merely went up because market value went up on net. They didn't add anything to their equity portfolio, which is completely anomalous historically. You don't see a 10-year economic recovery in which investors don't add any more capital to the equity market on net. It's, ju it's just wildly strange. Um, I think starting in 2020, probably extending into 2021, and, and I do think moving into 2022 and beyond, we're going to continue to see this great rotation. Really, in 2020, we started to see the first signs that equity and that investors are interested in stocks again with flows coming back to the market. Longer term flows moving back into stocks. We started to see IPO issuance again in 2020 and 2021. These are things that I didn't talk about for 10 years um, because they just weren't supports to the stock market. Instead, the stock market went up because the supply of equities went down, not because demand for equities went higher. So I, I think that we are seeing a little bit more exuberance in the stock market develop simply because the barn market is in disrepair. There will be offsets and in periods of time in which rates are dominating attention and moving in a spiking fashion, it does create volatility for the stock market. But longer term, you know, you just model what happened in the 1950s and 60s. The stock market went through a 20-year bull market as rates were rising. This is certainly possible to have rates rise and the stock market rise at the same time. But you do have to have very strong growth and you have to have somewhat contained inflation before it gets it. There's a, a switch that gets flipped. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
Okay, so that whole idea of bonds and stocks, and this is what most people have in their retirement portfolio. This brings me to a theory I want to I want to throw at Carl. I've thrown I threw it at Gina last time she was on. Carl, he's sitting in a lawn chair right now. <laughs> yeah, this is this is this is kind of why my the the lawn chair thing comes up with me. I have this thing called the Boomerati theory, which is that you know how like Jay Powell's a boomer, uh, Trump was a boomer. Isn't it? First of all, it's interesting that Trump and Biden kept the same Fed chair. They they would agree on nothing. Two things they agree on: they like Powell and they hate Bitcoin. Right? There's a boomer thing. It transcends politics. They have all the money. If you look at the stock and bond market over the years, it's become America's retirement fund. So all these boomers, which they own about like seventy percent of the stock market, it's their money, and they're at all the levers of power. So is there possibly? subconsciously or consciously going to always be a Fed put because this is literally America's retirement money. We cannot let the stock and bar market go down that much. I would say that this is not, I, first of all, uh, as you're sitting in your lawn chair, I, I suggest you take off the tinfoil hat <laughs> or at least uh, loosen yep. it around the, put the uh, Twitter uh, down. edges a put little bit. Put the Twitter bit. down. <laughs> so in, in some capacity, we could view this through the eyes of the boomers preserving their wealth and uh, some conspiracy against uh, the millennials and their disruptions and whatnot, uh, although the millennials are, are, are uh, you know poised for the largest transfer of wealth in the history of humankind as we look uh, you know, 20, 20 years uh, down the road uh, and whatnot. Uh, however, uh, again, this preservation of the stock market or the Fed put. So the Fed is not just acting to prop up assets. Uh, the Fed is looking at economic uh, looking to achieve successful economic stewardship. Now, if they successfully achieve that goal of price stability and maximum employment, uh, then they are creating the, the type of economy that Gina is describing, uh, where you have uh, controlled inflation pressures and healthy uh, growth in the economy, uh, and that should be favorable for the equity market. So, uh, you know, it's more about uh, the economic stewardship question, which the, the side effect of that is a healthy stock market uh, than some sort of nefarious plot for uh, uh, some generation to uh, hoard hoard the wealth, uh, as you say. And, you know, as Gina described it as uh, the, I think she used the, the expression, the great rotation uh, that we're seeing uh, playing out over the next couple of years, I think of it in macro terms as the great competition. Right. And the competition is with, uh, let's say, a two year government yield. Right during the crisis, two-year government uh, uh, government notes uh, were yielding about 0.1 percent. Uh, they are now yielding uh, a full percentage point higher, about 1.1 percent, and that will only go up as the Fed formalizes its plans uh, to continue raising rates. If the Fed is raising the overnight rate, uh, two-year yields are going to go up as well. So now. Uh, stocks, whether it's uh, Kathy Wood's ARC or uh, a dividend-paying, uh, you know, uh, equity uh, aristocrat, uh, they they're not competing against that 0.1 percent uh, rate of return. They're now uh, com competing against a 1.1 percent uh, yield on a two-year uh, government uh, security. So uh, that competition is heating up, and that means you're you're less happy holding uh, those longer uh, maturity assets uh, like a ten-year yield or a, a you know a thirty-year uh, bond, for instance, or some of the corporates, uh, you know, very highly rated corporates that are not giving you much return. 
the competition is heating up. And so now there's more of that rotation into higher yielding equities, uh, for instance, which is uh, you know, another way of framing that uh, growth versus value uh, uh, debate. Okay, as we start to bring this roller coaster ride to to an end, um, Carl, Gina, I'm going to ask you a question, and uh, it, it's it's a free for all. You can do whatever you want with it. Um, Eric knows a lot about ETFs. We've talked a lot about the economy, about the Fed, about equities. What ETF question would you like to ask, Eric? Carl, go. You go first. Okay. Well, first, before I ask that question, uh, I'm just going to go back to Joel's uh, roller coaster analogy because Gina and I have done our best here uh, to uh, to kind of signal that the roller coaster, just because it goes up the steep hill, doesn't mean there's a scary descent uh, thereafter. Uh, and we both have a relatively constructive outlook where the Fed can move towards the exit and the economy performs soundly. Uh, and that's our uh, my baseline scenario. I believe it's Gina's uh, baseline scenario as well. Uh, that doesn't mean this can't be a scary or bumpy uh, roller coaster ride because the, you know this is a, a a path fraught with danger, right? If the Fed uh, is too worried over the inflation outlook, uh, tightens too aggressively, uh, unwinds the balance sheet, which is again a tool we we've only used once before, so we're not entirely. Uh, sure of what the potency of that tool is. So if we we take the unknown medicine uh, and take too high of a dosage, uh, you can have some real problems here. And so it can certainly be a bumpy ride. And the risk is, you know, the Fed could move too slowly and inflation gets out of control. I think the bigger concern is that the Fed could potentially panic, move too aggressively and nudge the economy into a downturn, into a recession, uh, which uh, then, you know, you're back to applying all of this aggressive uh, medication to try to uh, re-stimulate growth. So there's certainly a, you know, a, a potentially exciting roller coaster ride ahead, Joel, uh, as you, uh, according to your analogy. Uh, but I would be interested in asking uh, Eric about uh, the passive uh, is passive investing passive versus active? Uh, is that you know how confident are you that that trend continues? Because if you're a passive investor uh, and you're in the type of economic cycle we saw over the past couple of years, Fed delivers massive uh, you know stimulus to the economy. So we you know with the rising tide's going to lift all ships. It's a great environment to be passive. Uh, I would uh, just to play devil's advocate. Uh, wonder if we're not heading into the stock picker's paradise now, where we've had a big rise in the equity markets, but now the differentiation starts to occur. As as the tide, as as Warren Buffett says, as the tide starts to uh, roll out, we find out who's wearing a bathing suit and who's not. Uh, aren't we heading into that realm right now, Eric, where now the active investors are going to really be able to differentiate themselves uh, as uh, as it becomes a stock picker's market? Uh, and therefore, it will be less of a, a pro ETF or, or at least a, a pro passive uh, environment uh, going forward. Well, yeah, good. You're good to separate ETF and passive because our big outlook theme this year is that um, ETFs have transcended the passive label. I mean, it's a big tent, and more and more they're becoming active, and people use them actively. So, one thing I would say is we just went over how flows are going into financials and value ETFs. So, people are actively using passive ETFs to reposition, just like you're saying relative to the, the stock picker problem is this a stock picker you know if you're doing deep value stock picking i think you have a bright future if you're doing like closet indexing stock picking like the fidelity magellan which holds mostly s&p and tilts a little 
your goose is cooked. You'll, you'll never get money again because nobody is going to sell a three basis point Vanguard fund and buy you for 80 basis points when you're mostly the Vanguard fund. And I can't even guarantee you'll outperform. In fact, the odds are you won't. Also, in past downturns, active has only outperformed at the same 33%, 35% rate as when it's good. The pro- the, look, cheap beta is just a hell of a drug. Uh, people are just not going to sell a three basis point Vanguard fund. My theory is if active got cheaper, if Fidelity started a passing on economies of scale and got to 20 bips, 15 bips, then their little bets uh, around the S&P could, could actually be worth it. But at 80, I just think... I just don't think it stops anything. I think what you will see, though, is more and more people use ETFs actively. And so you'll see flows into financials, deep value, and and that kind of thing. But I, as we can see, um, Vanguard is uh, taking in money like like nobody's business. And also the Vanguard type investor, the kind of person who goes to Vanguard typically is pretty aware that uh, you own everything. So whether values in play or growth in play or energy stocks are a hit, it's FOMO proof. You already own it. I don't really care. I'll just, you know, what what am I going to do? Replace this with like the hot stock picker of that year and then probably underperform in the year after. Most of them have just come to the conclusion there's no better deal. That's my opinion on that. Gina. Do I get to ask my question now? So Yeah, I was going to say, you're Eric's boss, so I'm really interested. And it can be drug-related, it could be uh, lawn chair-related or ETF-related, your call. So um, my question really is around the the non-passive portion of ETFs, and we have seen some active conversions. We've obviously seen thematic investing really just take off over the course of the last few years. And your team, Eric, has done some insane work on themes and, and the sort of the the themes that are driving stocks. So um, my question for you is, who's the next ARC? If ARC is over, if we can just assume that ARC is over for now, where are we going to see the next big theme? What's the next big theme that's going to drive stocks? And 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 what should we be on, the guard, on guard for? Yeah, this is really a fascinating question because uh, we wrote a note that said a deep value ETF could be the next Kathy Wood. Because it's... It's not about growth. It's really about concentration. We think that if most people's core of their portfolio is now in dirt cheap beta, and they're happy with that, they're not going to touch it, they're going to let the paint dry for 20 years, they are looking for things to Mm -hmm. put on the outside, like hot sauce. So Kathy was perfectly positioned for a growth wave hot sauce. What comes next? Um, You know, and and theme ETFs, uh, like cybersecurity and cryptocurrency ETFs. So I think you could see uh, themes start to repackage value stocks in fun, clever ways. Like maybe they'll come out with a stuff you're really effing (laughs) ETF, which is basically just like consumer staples. Because themes have really done a good job of stealing thunder from sectors and from styles and from factors by sort of making it easy, you know, more fun and easy to understand, like the work from home ETF. That's just two sectors put together. It's not like rocket science, but the, the labeling is really is really powerful. And so we also think, that, so I think you'll find some themes that tap into like maybe the staples or value stocks um, and, and just may, maybe a deep value ETF because we did see that the ones that have the most concentration pop the most in Q1 and they were doubling and tripling the Vanguard value ETF, which is very weighted down with big cap names. So again, our big theme is, look, you, we always say you have to, there's three C's, there's the three C's to ETF success. You got to be cheap, you got to be creative or concentrated, 
or Cabernet, which is you got to sort of like wine and dine advisors. But I'll move that that <laughs> lane aside. But clearly, something shiny objects aren't limited mm-hmm. to growth. They can be value. They can be energy. Um, you know, there's an ETF called uh, the the fracking ETF. I mean, there's certain ways you can sort of play with the energy, maybe like old guy, old school energy or something, and maybe try to make oil producers interesting again because they're doing so well. So that's where I think you'll see it. But a lot of those flows are more on the fringe, um, but they're going to keep coming. I mean, we just saw an ETF for airline cruises and hotels, which is essentially like the reopening trade. Joel, Joel, can I get a second question? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank, thanks, Jeannie. That's like asking the genie for another yeah. three wishes. Um, I want to ask Eric if you think that this kind of deep value investment can outperform something like tech disruption, which is what ARC was all about, uh, over a longer period of time. And I, I would, you know, as a skeptic, I would say, no, it couldn't. Tech is going to outper, you know, tech disruption is going to have a, a higher sustained growth rate over the long run than, than deep value, which may in the short run have a rebound and maybe outpace tech, but not over the longer run. Well, it all moves in waves. You know, I have a line in my new book coming out uh, about Bogle because he was he launched the value ETF and the growth ETF way back in the 90s. He actually pioneered style indexing. And he said, I thought you'd buy the growth ETF when you're young and then you transfer to the value and you find out people tried to trade it and they ended up doing worse than just owning the S&P. And if you track growth and value over a long period of time, they, they sort of end up at the same spot. So I cite that line from Almost Famous. When Lester Bangs tells the high school reporter, oh, don't worry, you'll meet them all again in the long road to the middle. So I do think if you time it right, you can make a lot of money. But in the 2000s, small cap value, and Gina, I think, will attest to this. She probably has better numbers than I do. In 2000 to 2010, which is Mm -hmm. a whole decade, small value crushed the S&P, which was, I think, flat. And small value was up a lot. And that was during a huge tech renaissance, right? You had a lot of uh, the Internet was just kind of like exploding. Um, so I would say it's totally possible that there's a complete regime change and it has to be like a psychological thing where people are just like, we were too crazy with the computers. We really want to get back to basics. I don't know. Like there's a psychological thing and it all of a sudden becomes, it just seems so silly to go so far into the, uh, tech and it seems more, I guess it just seems right to go into staples and energy for some reason. I don't know if Gina has a comment on that, but I, I don't know if that psychological thing will ever, to Carl's point, our culture is so tech-oriented. Could someone ever get out of that psychological mindset that tech is mm-hmm. the future? Well, I, I think we're watching it happen to some degree, and we're watching it happen in energy stocks and technology-related energy stocks. I mean, the perfect example, the S&P 500 is even thinking about reconstituting indices because they don't know what to do with all these techie energy companies, right? And we're in the midst of, you know, trying to uh, tackle things like climate change and, uh, you know, massive energy consumption problems that are resulting in energy stocks materially outperforming. I mean, I don't know how many people pay attention to this, but energy stocks were up 20% in January while the market crashed. And it's been our big call for the last year and a half that, Longer term, as long as inflation is at a much stronger pace, that's the key. And if, uh, you know, commodity prices are contributing to that inflation, then it's even a bigger key that energy stocks will outperform. And if you look back in history, growth doesn't always outperform. Value usually outperforms when growth, economic growth is faster. 
because value stocks tend to leverage that near-term economic growth outlook better, right? Tech has longer dated cash flows. Value stocks get the immediate cash flow growth when the economy is running at a faster pace. So I, I completely agree that it's a, I think it's a great call to be in small cap value. I think value already is showing signs of topping out uh, or, or beating out growth stocks and will continue to beat out growth stocks. Our favorite sector is still energy, followed very closely by financials. And I don't see that changing. Um, and what will make that chain, what will make that endure is the inflation outlook. If, if you think inflation is going to settle this cycle at a pace above 3%, you have to be in value over growth. If you think inflation is going to revert back to the slow inflation environment that we saw in the last cycle, then you want, you know, you want to move back toward the growth, growth sensitive stocks in the market. Carl, we have a question that we ask everybody on Trillions. First uh -oh. time on. So you're going to get it. Uh, what's your favorite ETF ticker? Oh, my goodness. My favorite ETF ticker. Don't worry, Carl. I bobble this question every time. Yeah, yeah You're I'm talking about ETF nerds. I'm going to go with like a kind of, you know, passive Vanguard, uh, <laughs> nice. you know, type of uh, all, all cap kind of uh, rising, rising tide continues to lift all boats. Since we're allowed to bobble the answer here, I'm going to go into my, my ETF pick list. I'm going to go with VIG, the Vanguard Dividend Appreciation ETF. And this factors back into this whole comp, the great competition thesis, which I mentioned uh, earlier in our uh, discussion, uh, because dividend appreciation is, uh, you know, I think going to be so uh, fundamentally important to stock valuations as we move into a higher inflation and higher interest rate regime for the foreseeable future. You bobbled well, it, recovered the fumble, and then like took off for a touchdown. <laughs> yeah, and that, also that's the first person who picked VIG. You're, you're original. All right, we'll end it there. Gina Martin-Adams, Carl Wigadana, thank you so much for joining us on Trillions. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.